Hello, and welcome to the Science Behind Science podcast. My name is Anne Tushar. And I'm Dennis Grensowitz. Here, we'll take you backstage of research to introduce you to the people behind science and how scientific discoveries really happen. Dr. Iris Nira Smith is a research associate in the Ang Lab of the Lerner Research Institute at Cleveland Clinic. Iris received both her bachelor's of science and PhD in biochemistry from the University of Houston. Her PhD had a special focus on computational biochemistry and biophysics, which has led her to become a true master of structural modeling of proteins. Iris has had a wonderful history of receiving great funding and publishing in high impact journals, most notably recently earning the K99R00 Mosaic Grant from the NIH NIGMS, which will allow her to finish her time in Dr. Eng's lab before having full support to launch her own independent scientific career as a principal investigator. As a recent K99R00 recipient, phenomenal scientist, and wonderful mentor to us academically and personally, we thought it was more than fitting to have Iris on the podcast to discuss her journey to becoming a principal investigator. In this episode, we discuss with Iris what a PI is, the technical qualifications, and some of the roles they play. Iris unpacks for us the many facets of her own journey towards independence, putting a strong focus on motivation and mindset. Her passion for research, admirable work ethic, and deep compassion for people is evident throughout this episode and serves as a powerful motivating force to us and hopefully to you as well. We hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Iris Smith. Hello, Iris. Thank you so much for being here with us today. We're so excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's such an honor. We're so excited. It's going to be so much fun. We're going to kick off our episode with you today talking about your road to becoming a PI, but we want to start from the very beginning. So can you tell us as a child what you wanted to be when you grew up? Oh my goodness. Wow. So we're going way back to the 70s, aren't we? (laughs) So as a kid, I really wanted to be an anesthesiologist. I think around second grade, was probably eight years old. And don't ask me how I heard about it. I don't know. I think maybe the name was just cool. And then finally, I figured out what it was. And I said, yes, that's for me. But shortly after that, I had some health issues that I didn't understand at the time, because really, you don't understand when you're a kid, what you're going through. I see it now, right? But to kind of give you just a breath of how much I love science in general was For Christmas, my parents ended up giving me the best Christmas present ever. And the first thing they gave me was a paperback copy of Gray's Anatomy. It was the best. I mean, this was like a really big 300, 400 page book. And I was just in awe. I was so happy. And the second thing they gave me was a cassette tape. Do you guys know what a cassette tape is? Of course. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) Still have a couple lying around. Yeah. Yeah. It's a Tchaikovsky cassette tape of the Nutcracker. I would just spend hours and hours in my room reading this Grey's Anatomy textbook, I guess, because they probably still use it as a textbook. Yep. And listening to my Tchaikovsky, and I had no idea what I was reading, but I was just fascinated (laughs) by the book. And, you know, shortly after that, I would probably say the next couple of months, I 
ended up in the hospital. I had an appendectomy. So I had appendicitis really bad and I had to have emergency surgery to get my appendix removed. Looking back, and this is part of my hypothesis as uh, my independent research, but looking back, you don't know what's going on at that age. And I was so terrified. And subsequently after that, I just had so many health issues with my stomach. And then when I finally hit puberty, I had been diagnosed with endometriosis. So endometriosis is when the endometrial lining deposits outside of the pelvic cavity. And so you have adhesions and you have a lot of cysts and you have scar tissue and just really pulls down on the uterus. And it's very, very painful, excruciating. So I, I think the appendectomy may have led to this endometriosis diagnosis. I don't know for sure, but it's just a hypothesis. Having had endometriosis and the subsequent excision surgeries and hormone therapy, and then presacral neurectomy, which is where they go in and they sever all the nerves from your sacrum to your uterus. I was just a shell of a person and I wasn't getting the answers from the doctors. It was, oh, just take this or just do this. And it wasn't an answer where, why do I have this? Why am I the only person in my family that has this? What causes it? Is it something that I'm doing? If it is, tell me how I can remedy the situation. But really during that time was when I felt something needed to be done for myself to get more answers. I was actually working for an engineering firm at the time, Ashbrook, Simon Hartley. And I had two other jobs at night. I was working for Ikea and I worked in the Galleria at a women's clothing store called Rampage. So I was just super busy. I had no time to be sick, <laughs> but I had to take on these jobs so that I could pay for my medical bills. And during that time frame, you know, because I'm having all these surgeries, I was diagnosed with something called vulvodynia, which is just dysregulation of the nerves and the vulva and just the pelvic floor. I had all of the dysfunction and nerve damage associated with the endometriosis. So as I mentioned, I was working at this company for, I would say nine and a half years, started first as a, an executive administrative assistant to the president. And then I just worked throughout the company. I was the lead auditor where I would go to our sister company in England, Thames Water, and I would audit the company there. And when I got back, I did a lot of the hiring and, and just helped build out that entire department. As much as I loved working for them, I just wasn't getting any better. It was taking a lot of short-term disability because of my surgeries. And I had to make the decision to quit my job after nine and a half years and get my degree. I was going to school part-time or I should say a quarter of the time, taking one class here and one class there. And I thought I'm never going to get answers. I'm never going to get my degree. And the time was then, right? I had to make a decision. I took out a portion of my 401k. And if you know anything about doing that, you get penalized for it. Thank God I only had to do it one time because after that I got scholarships and I got grants and just really helped pave my way into research. I would say I got grants for bridge to doctorate to get into grad school. I got grants and scholarships just for my grades. And it's amazing looking back now to see how all my steps were orchestrated. I'm a, I'm a woman of faith. I look back now and I really see how God's hand really led me just all the way through. And even to the company that I was working for, I, working for Ashbrook, Simon Hartley, this engineering firm, 
I actually had staff, you know, I'm taking a step back here just to kind of give you the full picture of how I got to that company. And then I eventually got into finishing out my bachelor's and then getting into grad school. So before actually making it to Ashbrook, Simon Hartley, I worked for a staffing agency. I was a staffing assistant. So I was responsible for doing all the background checks for individuals and doing preliminary interviews. And I would send these people out on assignment. So one day this woman had called in. I had already given her an assignment to go to Ashbrook. And she called in. She said, I'm sorry, I have a flat tire. I can't make it. So I ended up going because it was so last minute and <laughs> And I never left. <laughs> she never called back either. And I never left. But the reason why I'm telling this full story is so that you can see it's not just one event. It's a series of events that leads you to where you're at and to not discount. I mean, this is just, I guess, a piece of advice that I'm giving that you don't want to discount your journey because you never know which direction it's going to take you. And I think for me, it was just trusting the process, trusting that no matter where I was at in my journey, that I was going to be taken care of. I guess that in a nutshell, somewhat answers your question, but I had to give you the full breadth of the past three decades of how I got here and what really piqued my interest to become a scientist, because it really wasn't just one event. It was a series of events, but it really hinged upon my health issues and seeking answers to those health issues and being an advocate for myself and for others, because I've met women along the way that have had or have endometriosis that are just lost or scared or don't have the means to do what I've, what I've done. No, thank you for telling us your whole story on this, Iris. That was, it provided a lot of context and I, I've known you for some time now, but I, I never knew the full extent to your deep motivation and passion for what you're doing. And that's really inspiring to me. So thank you for talking about that. And I know it's, it's hard to talk about personal motivation on things sometimes. So I really appreciate that. Mm -hmm. And it's really cool to see how you found something in yourself that allows for this strong desire to make a difference in the field of science. I think that everybody derives their own passion in research differently, but a lot of the people that get involved and are happy in the long term are the ones who are really driven for like exterior reasons, right? Mm -hmm. And we see a lot of PIs or principal investigators that end up doing really well that have this kind of extrinsic and intrinsic motivation besides just the title of professor or something. So to talk more about this role that you're moving towards now and kind of like the road to becoming a principal investigator, we first wanted to start with, since this is very soon in the future, going to be your job title, ha ha ha, or that's what we see. Very soon in the future. Fingers crossed. Yeah, fingers crossed that you're moving into this position. So before we get into the, the nitty gritty of everything, we wanted to start for our audience to talk about like, what is the purpose of a principal investigator? What is this job title? What are some pseudonyms for this? Could you just give us some basic background information about the purpose of a principal investigator? Sure. My pseudonym for PI would be a detective. Ooh. I love murder mystery. <laughs> <laughs> I actually love watching Monk and anything Agatha Christie. So I can relate to being a detective as a principal investigator. You have to collect evidence. You have to search. You have to interrogate. You have to really focus on your hypotheses. Keep it at the forefront of your mind all the time when, when you're thinking about something. I would definitely say that as a PI, you wear many hats. You're not just a researcher, but you're a counselor, <laughs> you're an administrator, you're a teacher, right? So you're many things all in one. 
when you talked about how you gather evidence as a PI and you keep your hypothesis at the forefront, that's what a lot of researchers are already doing. We have a lot of project scientists, research associates, and that's their job already. So I like how you hit on what being a PI allows you to do that you can't already do in the role that you're in. If there's anything else that comes to mind maybe that you can do as a PI that you can't do as a researcher in your current role, if you want to speak to that a little more. Well, yes, I came in as a postdoc into Dr. Ng's lab and have since been promoted to research associate. I I would say that as a PI, you have to write more grants. You have to find ways to fund your lab. You have to find ways to market your lab. I think as a postdoc or tech or research associate, you get to do some of those things, but not to the same degree as you would as, as a PI. So to take a step back on motivation a little bit too, before we get into kind of the details of getting there, who do you think should want to become a principal investigator? What skills, what kind of personality traits? Obviously, there's a wide breadth here. You talk about being a detective. So is it someone who is just interested in questions that are unanswered? Could you summarize who would want to become a PI? Anyone who asks the question why, right? As a scientist, if you ask why, my poor husband right now, because he, he talks to my parents about this often. She's always asking why, why? And my parents would say, oh, you should have seen her as a kid. She was always asking why, why this? Why can't I do this? What about this? And can you explain this? And I think as a kid, that really shaped me to become the scientist that I am today. You have to always ask why, why you're doing what you're doing and why is someone else doing what they're doing, right? Because a lot of times your work can complement theirs or theirs can complement yours. And I think as a PI, you need to be able to constantly be asking the questions. You don't want to be stagnant. You want to use the literature, the seminal papers, what's already been established to build upon your questions at hand. So you have a hypothesis, you have a project, you know your specific aims, but at the same time, you have to constantly sit down with yourself and revisit, okay, why did I initially pursue aim one sub A or aim one sub B? Why am I focusing on aim two? Now, what can I do to support these aims to move forward? How can I bring new light to these aims? How can I strengthen these aims? And I think as a PI, as a researcher in general, you, you have to constantly ask those questions. Curiosity. Curiosity, yes. You have to be curious and creative. <laughs> mm. Two very important characteristics for sure. Yes. We heard about your journey and you've had your own route to becoming a PI. What are some of the other routes that people can take? Is there like a standard route? Is there a bunch of other more non-conventional routes that people take? Yes. I think in the past there were opportunities and I don't know how long ago this was, where you had a bachelor's or a master's, you could eventually work towards a PI. But nowadays, that's not the case. Nowadays, it's the bachelor's, and then it's possibly the master's, and then the PhD, and then towards the PI-ship. I don't think that you can continue in a way where you're just going to focus on a bachelor's and think I'm going to head towards a PI. I think you really have to take the time to go to grad school get a PhD, do a postdoc, and do maybe one, maybe two, maybe three postdocs before you feel that you have enough skill set to take you into the next arm of, of your journey, which is for a PI ship role. 
Yeah, that's some of the uh, technical questions I think we wanted to talk about today, too, because I know that there are many qualifications needed and a couple different ways to get to opening a lab, which is basically like what we're talking about, like opening your own independent wing of research. So like I'm going to medical school and could potentially be a PI, right? So like an MD or a DO could become a PI. Yes. Could you explain like some of the technical qualifications? You need a bachelor's. You basically need some form of graduate school education, albeit a DO, MD, but most commonly PhD right now or MD, PhD, et cetera. Are there other technical qualifications that you think you see a lot of up and coming young PIs similar to you have specifically like number of citations, experience on different boards, or like reviewers for certain journals, some of the other technical qualifications that might not just be the degree? Yes, of course. So I would say that you would definitely need a track record of funding, probably all the way back to your bachelor's, I would say. They need to be able to see that you can keep that line of funding going. You need to show that you're an expert in the field to be able to establish your own lab. Citations is important. Also, where are you publishing in? Like what type of journals are you publishing in? You know, as a computational biophysicist, I wouldn't be publishing in a molecular biology journal if I'm just providing computational data or MD simulations, right? I need to be able to have a good track record of seminal papers as well in the literature. I need to show that, I need to prove it. And I think Having those really sets you up, having both the funding track record and publishing track record, because ultimately the way one of my mentors put it during grad school was, you know, having papers is the currency in our field. You need to be able to show that you're productive. You need to be able to show that you can think independently. And and I think those are some of the technical qualities that people don't always talk about, but I think it's assumed. It's assumed, and I, and I think when you share this with others, you get a feel for what it takes, the grit that it takes to really move towards becoming a, a PI. It's, it's, there's a lot more to it. I'm not quite there, right? I'm not quite in the realm of PI-ship, but definitely I would say those two categories are ones that stand out the most. Yeah, given that you're on the doorstep with the K99R00 kangaroo grant, that is really exciting. Again, congratulations on this. Yeah, we do want to recognize that we're talking a little bit through speculation. But one question I had for you really quickly about the currency of papers, would you say that that matters more for publishing like your big paper in a big journal, a lot of papers in smaller journals in your field? What's more valuable, like one $100 bill or 100 $1 bills? Does it matter? Because I, I think I've seen a difference. Do you have any personal insight into that question? Yes, that's a really good question, Dennis, because it depends on who you ask, right? Some people will say, I need a cell, I need a nature, and I need a PNAS paper, right? That's the only way I can succeed as a PI is if I get those. But that's not necessarily true. I mean, yes, having those in your pocket, that's almost a guarantee in a way, right? But you have to show that you're productive. You have to show that you have first author papers or co-first author papers and show that you work well with others and you play nice. Having these collaborations, having your name, whether it's a third author paper or fourth, showing that you're productive and you're doing science and you're collaborating with others is also a plus in terms of publications. Some of those nature papers are very thorough and you could tell that they've been working on it for years. 
to get oh, to that yes. point where they could publish. So sometimes it's almost like, should you be putting all your eggs in that one basket? Yeah. And it does depend on whose lab you're working in. There are some PIs who feel, let's put all of this into one paper and you have 20 individuals submitting for PNAS, which is wonderful. But during that time, you could still be submitting smaller works into other journals that have, you know, reputable impact factors to show the productivity. And now instead of impact factors, I think they're leaning more into H indexes for individuals that are publishing in the scientific realm. One question I wanted to ask Iris too is, we talked about some things you can do as a PI, the new things you get to do or things you get to do in a greater capacity. But what are some things that you're not going to be doing that you're doing now, say, as a current researcher, where your only focus is to work on your specific project? Can you explain some of the differences and how PIs might be involved in their labs? Are they still working at the bench? What are they doing now? I would say the amount of bench work in raw science that a PI does would dramatically decrease once they start their lab. And that can be a shock for some. You're a postdoc or a research associate and you're constantly at the bench and you're pushing out papers and you're working, you know, 10, 12 hours a day sometimes or more. (laughs) And once you hit that road to PI ship, it will be almost like a culture shock to some people because that workload is then transferred to your trainees in a sense, and you have to focus on other things. Like I mentioned earlier, administrative, hiring, firing, ordering, teaching, you know, you really have to shift your direction, being able to juggle multiple things at once, knowing or having a good grasp on your time management skills. That's key. And I really learned that in grad school and it's helped me now to this day that I'm in my postdoc in my RA position. But yeah, I would say as a PI, you don't get to do the same bench work and raw science that you were doing as a postdoc. Yeah. And I think we're definitely talking about this in the context of being at like a medical center, right? So a PI Mm -hmm. at like a small institution, for instance, my college, which had no graduate students, they're only teaching really besides like teaching undergrads in a lab. So that role as a professor, which is like the same title, right, would look different than PI at one of the big medical institutions too. So even taking that nuance into consideration for like how the job is going to change. And I'm sure you probably have thought about this a lot, Iris, for where you'd actually want to land. So do you have anything that you'd want to mention? Like, are you thinking about teaching more? Is that something you want to do? Would you just want to have a lab? So actually, when I was in grad school, I taught taught the molecular modeling graduate course. I really enjoyed that. And one thing that I don't get to do now that I did as a grad student as well was I mentored a lot of students. I mentored 14 students that came into the lab. And again, looking back, right, introspection with everything that I was going through with my health and doing that, I mean, it was just so rewarding because The best thing about my PI at the time was he would let us take a project that we wanted to build all on our own. And for me, it was endometriosis focus. Whereas anybody else who came into the lab had other areas of research that they wanted to focus on. And he gave us full autonomy to do that. And when someone would come into the lab and I'd ask them, so what interests you? What disease state piques your interest? What would you like to investigate for the next six weeks, one year? 
I was mentoring grad students. I was mentoring high school students. I was mentoring undergrads. I was mentoring summer students. So my approach with them, I had to tailor to how long they were going to be in the lab. So I think as a PI, that's definitely something that you need to focus on outside of just whether you're teaching at an academic institution or a medical center, because like you said, Dennis, you will have an MD, right? Or possibly someone will have a DO. And if they're teaching at a medical institute, they may also be seeing patients. So you really have to know how to balance your time and energy and focus for your lab, for your patients and not lose your sanity. Yeah. It's a big <laughs> underpinning there. Yes. Yes. I was reading an article. It's really great. It's called 10 Simple Rules to Becoming a Principal Investigator. And it was published in 2020. There was one thing that really stood out to me in the paper where they said, being a PI is essentially just a job. It's just a job like anything else. And you really have to learn how to balance your time, balance both your personal and your professional lives so that you can be successful. And this is where I want to speak to a little bit about don't let your work be your only thing. You have to take the time to devote to your family. If you have kids, to your spouse, to your parents, to your friends, because if something happens to you, like in my case, I had so many health issues. I really relied on my support network to get me through a lot of that. And, you know, when I wasn't working because of that, I needed them. And when I was working, I needed to be able to balance that time to give to them how they gave to me when I wasn't working and I was trying to recover from a surgery or something. So I think the key word here is that PI is learning how to juggle no matter where you're at, whether it's academic institute, whether it's research only institute, whether it's teaching only institute, key word is balance and juggle. I can ask one more question about the balancing and juggling with relationships, because I think as a scientist, one of the tricky aspects of it is with experiments, sometimes they take longer than expected. Sometimes you're in the lab really late. Sometimes planning is just not possible to the degree it is for some other nine to fives. Yes. How do you find the way to make margin for investing in other relationships when it's so hard to plan your own life sometimes? Or how do you plan when it's pretty hard to plan? Oh, yes. A lot of times when I'm thinking about somebody, I will immediately just message them. Hey, how's your day? How's it going? Because I don't want to lose that sight of communicating with somebody. We can get so busy throughout the day and like, oh, I'll just message this person later. or Oh, I'll call them later. Most of the time, if you're in a meeting, obviously you're not going to pick up your phone and call someone. <laughs> but if you're walking from your car to, let's say the lab or you're leaving work and you're walking from the lab to your car, your grocery shopping or something, just anything. The moment someone comes to your mind, just reach out to them. And it doesn't have to be this long interaction. It could just be, hey, I'm thinking about you. Have a great day. And I think the way you phrase the message, it doesn't have to go into an hour long text back and forth. And then before you know it, you're behind in your work. It could just be a quick, hey, I'm thinking about you. Have a great day. I, I think you can still maintain relationships that way when let's say you have a gel or an experiment takes longer. I, I know when I was an undergrad and I was doing more wet lab work during that time when I was an undergrad, I would go in sometimes stay to like midnight, but I would write 
write messages. People were asleep. I would write messages and save it in my notes. And then when I woke up in the middle of the night or when I woke up first thing in the morning, I would send them to people. And But if you really value your friendships and, and the people that have stayed by your side, you will put the time into it. Five minutes, 10 minutes, calling them on the weekend just to keep that relationship going. There's such pragmatic ways to be kind. I don't know. It was very nice to hear. I feel very bubbly now, Iris. Thank you for that. <laughs> this helps me, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned that with becoming a PI, you have to become like a master juggler, right? And mm-hmm. based on the experiences you've talked about so far, I can already see how you've been really becoming a master juggler over time as to part of the reason probably why you were successful in getting the K99, as well as just being a kick-butt scientist. But anyway. You're so sweet. With that in mind, how long have you been either subconsciously or consciously preparing for this role or like moving into this? And kind of what did you think about once you started getting tied into the idea of becoming a principal investigator? What did you consciously choose to do? Like extra courses, things you took on, things you cut out, people you tried to put around you. Could you give like kind of a holistic picture of the development that you tried? to foster. And I guess one thing to note about this is that sometimes people don't obviously see all the things about how they work towards some end goal in the moment, right? But even giving some kind of retrospective picture would be good. Yes. Good question. Thank you, Dennis. I would say probably since I was eight, I've been preparing for this role. And I I didn't want to become a PI at the age of eight. I knew I always wanted to be in science. And I think Obviously, as I mentioned, my trajectory just took a different path. But when I did decide that I wanted to be a PI, it was fairly recently. I would say as I was preparing to write the K-99, I had to really sit down, have discussions with myself, have discussions with my husband, Dr. Ang, you know, what is required of me, the time and energy I would be putting into this new path, right? I mean, it's not for everyone. And I've talked to several people who have paved the way to people that are just now embarking on this path. And yeah, it's really stressful. It's overwhelming, but it's also very rewarding. And Looking back, everything I've been through has led me to this point. The health issues, the career that I was in prior to coming here, because all the soft skills that I developed when I was working at Ashbrook, Simon Hartley, interpersonal skills that I developed, I think that really helped me to hone the skill set that I have as a scientist. When I was working on my bio sketch for the K99, I asked both Dr. Ang and my husband, should I put in my employment history too? And I think I knew the answer before they told me because it shows all of the skills that I have outside of just being a scientist and how it's really helped me to, I guess, multitask, be that juggler that I need to be. On top of my duties at Ashburg when I was working in industry, I mentioned that I was an auditor too. So I had to go and, and audit routinely throughout the, I would say, I think we did it every quarter. And then I would fly out to England and I would audit them. Knowing how to interact with people. I think looking back and seeing how I was learning how to interact with people and, and investigate. And that really helped me to become the scientist I am because when I approach things now, 
I don't just approach it blindly. I approach it with, like I said, a detective hat. And I had to do that as an auditor. I couldn't just go into someone's office and take them at face value. I had to really be the detective. I had to do my due diligence. If I asked a question and they said one thing, I had to make sure that I followed it up with evidence. And it wasn't to get anyone in trouble because I had to think about it in the sense that if I don't make sure that I'm doing my job, we could lose our certification. And if we lose our certification, fill in the blank, right? So I needed to make sure that when somebody was telling me something that they were being honest and forthcoming. And I had to also approach them in the sense that I'm not here to get you in trouble. I'm here to evaluate the processes within the company to make sure that they are stable enough, whether it's in the engineering department or in the sales department or an R&D or in the shop. And I think that really helped me in my skills as a PI too. I wouldn't say there isn't a specific course that you can take for PI-ship, but there are things that you can do to prepare you for the role. Right now I'm taking an art of scientific communication course, and I'm taking this course because I want to make sure that I don't get stuck in the jargon of my field. I want to not only be able to talk to scientists effectively, but I also want to be able to talk to non-scientists effectively and share my research. And why should they care? Why should they care about my research? Well, For one thing, their tax dollars are paying for my research. So I need to make sure that they're comfortable and I'm credible. And in order to do so, I need to be able to communicate what it is that I do in an effective manner. Big motivator for our podcast. (laughs) If people are paying our bills, (laughs) they deserve to know what we're doing. Yes. But but no, that's really good to hear. What's the background on the class you're taking? Is that Masterclass, Coursera? No, no. So my K99 is given through the NIGMS Institute of NIH. And so with NIGMS and ASBMB, which is a scientific society, okay. they are offering this art of science communication. I did oh, nice. look into the Alan Alda scientific communication, but it was super expensive. Yeah, we were wondering if there was like any uh, easy courses or anything you'd recommend for anybody to take. I would definitely recommend that course. I'm also a Toastmaster, which is another thing that you can do as a scientist, but also if you want to have a better grasp of how you communicate as an independent researcher. I think taking any type of communication or public speaking course can only benefit you in the long run. Before, I used to say so many filler words. I mean, I still say filler words, but I've I've learned over time how to add some pregnant pauses and some skills that they give you during Toastmaster masters to help you to be a better communicator. And the good thing is that in the club that I belong to is it's here at the Cleveland Clinic, but not everybody's a research scientist. We have people that are nurses, people that are doctors, people that are an admin. So when you're presenting before them, they pick up the jargon real quick and they'll let you know, you know, here's some things that you can work on. (laughs) Here are some gifts. It helps us to be better communicators. And I can't stress how important it is to really spend some time on how to communicate interpersonally and also how to communicate your research. I can speak to the value of Toastmasters as a scientist, because I know that when I talk about my research in front of the group of people, it's usually on Zoom. We used to do things in person, but it's usually on Zoom. You can tell when you've lost them really easily, really quickly. And it's great. It's really helpful because you realize how far removed sometimes what you're saying and doing is for some people. And it helps you get back down to their level to help them see what the value is of what you're doing and what you really want them to take away from it. Yeah, the worst thing to do is just use jargon. I feel so bad. It's just like immediately like, oh, never mind. 
Yeah, because as a scientist, you really have to be able to take a 30 foot view before you can take it to the terra firma. You really need to be able to say, as a whole, this is what I'm doing. And then you can funnel it a little bit more. Yeah. Another plug for a course like this is uh, I took like Dale Carnegie in high school, which is another public speaking course. That was pretty good for me too. But no, these are all really great things, I think. And so thank you for sharing that. In addition to just the hard resources, obviously there are a lot of things that go into development of someone in this position. Specifically, another thing that we would like to talk about is like support. You've already mentioned support from your current mentor, previous mentors you've had, from your family, from your husband. Could you delve into the kind of support that you found really helpful for you? And obviously it's through all those relationships, right? But the emotional support, the firm backbone that people provide, the, oh, yes. you know, kick in the butt sometimes you need, like that kind of stuff, like <laughs> what's worked for you, what you think is important for people to seek out on their route there? Yes, I think in addition to the resources that I mentioned, having the support from other people who are on the same path or have just started that route. So we have a lot of wonderful early career PIs that just started their journey here at the Cleveland Clinic within GMI specifically. Just fantastic, wonderful individuals that are willing to help you and mentor you. So I would say if you're starting out on this trajectory to become a PI or a postdoc or a research associate, to really talk with them, try to establish a relationship with them and seek some mentorship. Your mentorship doesn't have to only come from your primary mentor, your PI of the lab that you're currently in. It can come from other PIs that you respect, other PIs that are starting out in the trajectory that you want to go in. Because if you want to take a certain path, you look at the people that are either starting out in that path or who have been in it for some time. And I think by talking to these individuals and seeking their support and seeking their guidance, you can learn so much about what it is that you need to do to enhance your skills, to enhance your interpersonal skills, not just your technical skills too. And they can guide you in that process. And having other mentors too that aren't in your field or that aren't along the same path to kind of cut you down <laughs> a couple of times when you feel like you need some talking to. <laughs> Or you just need to be propped up a little bit because we all have imposter syndrome. I, I don't care who you are, where you're at in your career, you will sometime in your journey have this imposter syndrome where you feel like, how did I get here? I don't deserve to be here. Why am I here? And that's when you're spending too much time looking at yourself and you need to spend more time either helping other people or seeking guidance and mentorship from others. I have had some wonderful mentors all throughout my research career. I, of course, Dr. Ng, and then my previous PI, Dr. Briggs, and then my PI in undergrad, Dr. Glenn Legg, who amazingly, he didn't get tenure at U of H, but he ended up deciding, well, you know, I didn't get tenure. I'm going to go to medical school. And at that time, he was mid-40s. He took his entire family. They had, at the time, two boys and moved to Australia. Really? <laughs> where he was from wow. to pursue his MD. And he's thriving now. Going back to if you don't get the PI ship, if you do get it, but then you don't get tenure, that's not the end of the world. There are other avenues that you can seek to stay in research, to stay in science. And to do that, you need the support. You need the mentors that believe in you. You need to be able to have this map versus ground mentality. And so I'm just going to read that to you because I really can't just call it off the top of my head. And I read about this from... 
a book called I've Seen the End of You, written by Dr. Lee Warren. He is a neuroscientist and a neurologist surgeon, and his research focuses on glioblastoma, but he's also a Christian. So he looks at it from the realm of both a scientist and a Christian. And so he explains this wonderful map versus ground mentality. And so in his book, he says it's a dialogue between a sergeant soldier and the colonel. So here's the dialogue. Sir, if the map don't agree with the ground, then the map is wrong. And this is said by the sergeant soldier to his superior as they had gotten lost and tried to follow a map. The map said there should be a hill nearby, but he couldn't see it. So in Dr. Warren's book, he really gleaned from this whole map versus ground mentality. He saw the parallel between faith and seeing something that's tangible in front of you. He said, you must believe the map so deeply that you know that it's there even when you can't see it. So that's that's the same thing with being a scientist, right? You have to believe in yourself and believe that you can and pursue this career trajectory, even when you can't see it. That's the whole realm of this map versus ground mentality. There's a lot of times you'll lose the faith that you can even achieve it. Things will happen. You know, you'll have naysayers on one shoulder and behind you and in front of you, and you have to believe it so deeply, even when you can't see it. And I really appreciated how he brought that forth in his book. It really gave me pause to kind of look at myself in that way too, because a lot of times, we will lose sight of the goal because we didn't get the grant that we wanted or we didn't get published in a journal that we wanted and we got negative reviews from somebody or, you know, fill in the blank. And you have to be so strong in your thoughts and your faith about something that you just keep pushing on. You have to have that perseverance. Yeah, I was wondering, I can speak generally to this, if there's any experiences you've had personally that have caused you to doubt this path for yourself, what you did to move forward from that or overcome those doubts? Do you have any experiences you can share with us? Oh, gosh. Yes. So as I mentioned, there's always going to be negative Nellies and there's always going to be times where there's failure. You really have to find the time and ways and tools to how you cope with that, especially how you cope with failure. Without getting into too much detail, I had gone through some, aside from, you know, my health issues, I had gone through some serious experiences where I felt like, well, maybe I'm not enough. Maybe I can't do this. Maybe this career trajectory to becoming a PI is not attainable for me. And some people feel that way because of the negative self-talk or listening to the negative Nellies. I've been told that I'm worthless. I've been told that my research should never see the light of day. When I had my heart surgery, I, I got wind of someone saying that, oh, well, maybe now that she has the hole closed up, she'll get oxygen to her brain. Oh you know, God. essentially yeah. that wasn't a compliment, right? <laughs> oh my goodness. But saying that all to say, if I took back all of the pain that they caused me, then I'd also lose the strength that I gained. And going back to the additional health situations, I had so many even just at the start of my postdoc. I mean, I was coming out of seven surgeries from having endometriosis and then a hysterectomy and then numerous nerve blocks just to counter the pain that I was experiencing. And it was so overwhelming. And in the midst of that, I was having TIAs, transischemic attacks, which I thought were just migraines. So essentially I was having these TIAs, these mini strokes, 
And I didn't know what they were until I went and I saw my eye doctor and I had to get an MRI, MRA ASAP. And they found the hole and it was rather large hole. And they recommended that I get it closed. And I had to, I think from the moment they found the hole in my heart to my surgery was two months, two and a half months. And it was just one thing after another. So my whole postdoc experience on top of the highs, I also had the lows because of my health concerns. And, you know, speaking to those experiences and and just saying that I felt like, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I'm, I'm equipped for this to continue independence, being a PI, having my own research lab. I just didn't know if I was cut out for that. But I think what we have to focus on when we're going through times like that is you will always have ups and you will always have downs. But you just like one of my favorite baseball players said, Mariano Rivero, he said, I have to take my losses the same way I take my victories. And I really applied that to my life when I was going through all those experiences. You just have to keep pushing forward. You're not always going to be motivated. And that was one thing that Dr. Briggs, my graduate PI, told me. And it sticks to me to this day. He says, you're not always going to be motivated, but you must be disciplined. You need to be disciplined. You need to have this perseverance to pursue the dreams that you have. And that doesn't have to be seeking a PI. It could be other things. You know, you're getting your MD, Dennis. It depends on the goals that you set for yourself. You have to believe in that strong map versus ground mentality that nothing can stop you, that you just keep going. It's not going to always be the way that you want it to be or the way that you envision it. You're not going to achieve it maybe in the time frame that you think you are, but you just got to keep going. You just got to keep putting one foot right in front of the other. Beautiful. I feel like you've just given us a great idea of the mindset that we need to have if we're going to take something like this on. And that's just the first step above anything else, isn't it? I want to take this even further now and thinking about what you've given up to pursue this goal. It's been a hard journey. And I know that there's probably a lot of things you've given up along the way. With every sacrifice, though, I also believe truly that there's something to be gained as well. So if you could speak to both of those things. It's a really good question. I've never really looked at it in terms of sacrifice or what I've lost. I've always looked at it in terms of gain. And this is actually the first time that I'm sitting here and realizing that I've never looked at it as a sacrifice. And I guess a part of me sometimes thinks, wow, I can't believe endometriosis stole any possibility of me having a family. But you don't have to give birth to have a family. Your family can be an extended family. Your family can be your friends. Your family can be your neighbors. Your family can be your coworkers. It really just depends how you see the upside of things. And for the longest time, I say the longest time, it seemed like forever. It was probably just two months, but... (laughs) But post my hysterectomy, I really thought, wow, I just lost all of this. I lost everything. But looking back now, and as I'm sitting here, I gained so much because of that sacrifice, because of my health, I gained so much in the process. Gained like a lifetime of motivation. Yeah. (laughs) Kick down the walls out here. Like, I feel like I'm ready to run through the door. I don't know. (laughs) Oh my gosh. But you know, not everybody's journey is going to be the same. And I think we have to learn to pick through our lives and say, okay, yes, this didn't go like I expected, but this did, and this did, 
and this did. And so if you constantly just keep looking at that, you're always in a win mentality. My dad used to always say, the things that you have now, you used to pray for. And the things that you also have now, other people are praying for. So don't lose sight of what you have in general, right? Don't take it for granted. And I did have some friends in grad school who, unfortunately, they had to stop and get a master's because it was very difficult. We came in, I think, from my program, there were 16 of us and... I think there were four women. I was the only woman that ended up completing the program in the, the time frame that we entered, the matriculation that we entered. And I think there were four of us that graduated. And I remember the struggles that my peers had. It's not easy. You do. In grad school, there's so much that I guess you do sacrifice your time with your family. And you have to look at it in the sense that where you are now is a blessing in and of itself. No, definitely. I've loved a lot of things about this conversation, but something that I really am taking away already is that we really just talked about motivation and drive and underpinnings of pursuing this career outside of anything related to like, I don't know what scientific field you're going to be in, like how hard it is academically, like you got to be pretty smart, you got to know how to communicate and everything else. The most important question should be stuff like this, though. Like, why would you really want to go down this route? And like, is this really going to be something that's going to make you happy for a lifetime? And that ensures that you actually see it to the end. Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah. A, that's another really good point. So now we wanted to get into some kind of more like exciting conversation to end this podcast for today. As planned with the K99, there is that transition period, right? So in the next couple of years, you're expecting that you'd go independent. Like that's the path you're on right now. So what are some of the characteristics that you're excited to grow in your trainees? Pretty much everything we talked about today, fostering those ideas. But then are there any other like academic skills that you're particularly excited that you think you're going to be able to endow upon them? Personal skills, things like that. Like how do you foresee being that mentor? Oh, wow. That's a loaded question. But I, I can probably answer it in a quick summary is I just want to see them succeed. I just want to see them grow. I don't want to push them into any ideal that I have of what a scientist should become. I want them to discover on their own. You know, I was given that luxury when I first started grad school. They asked me, what do you want to do? What excites you? And I took that same approach when I was mentoring the students that came into Dr. Briggs' lab. I let them explore. I let them have excitement about research. I saw when the light went off in their head, when what they were doing actually gave birth to passion for research. And I've talked to several of my trainees since then. And it's so wonderful. One of them is going to medical school. One of them is currently in medical school, finishing out. And another one is in her residency. I still interact with them. And it's amazing to see where they were when they first walked into the lab and to see where they are now. And just to see that growth, to be able to identify and see in them what they didn't see in themselves. And I hope to do that when I start my own lab. I don't want to be known as a taskmaster. Yes, we have to get work done. Yes, we have to answer to the people, right? Because it's the taxpayer's money that is giving us the funding that we are seeking. But at the same time, at the end of the day, they need to be happy with what they're doing. They can't just come in with a blase mentality and think that that's what science is. There needs to be that passion and excitement to be successful, to start out in that trajectory. I have no doubts 
that you will be able to excite them and get them passionate <laughs> about their work and that you will do everything you can to help them grow. We know that. Aww. We can see it. You're so sweet. I'm so excited to see you as a PI, Iris. I, oh my gosh. All right. So Iris, we've gone through your journey and in thinking about who you were when you started, is there any piece of advice you would give to your younger self? Oh, yeah. All the tears. I'm looking back. <laughs> Oh my goodness. I remember my poor husband, he would always tell me, you're just looking at it from today's perspective. You're not looking at it from a future perspective. Cause I would always be so stressed about something that was going on at the time. And I would say to my former self or my younger self, God will make a way when it is impossible. You know, a lot of times we think we're the ones that are in charge of our destiny, but we're not. There are so many things that are going on at any given moment that our mentors are preparing for us, that God's preparing for us, that if we could see it like this fourth dimension, we would be in such awe. And I think just talking to my former self, I would say, keep your chin up. So to end out, what is one word of encouragement or like idea of encouragement you'd want to leave our listeners who are considering on going down the same path that might be early on and that also maybe are going to be trying to take that leap pretty soon? So piece of advice is find ways to cope with failure and find ways to celebrate every major and minor accomplishment as a scientist. <laughs> Right. It goes back to what I was saying, Mariano Rivera, when I was quoting him, right? We need to take our losses just as well as we take our victories. And I, I come from a big Hispanic family <laughs> and we celebrate everything. Growing up, it was like, oh, so you lost a tooth? Don't worry. I'll get the ice cream and Jose will get the cake. Right. <laughs> so it was like that. Like That's we awesome. celebrated everything. And so I just really want to tell people to enjoy, enjoy your research career. Don't give up, get back up every time you fail. Cause you will fail. <laughs> I failed many times and had it not been for just sheer perseverance, who knows where I'd be. And I think, I really think the experiences that I've been through both negative and positive. I grew more in the negative. I grew more definitely in the negative. And I really want my listeners and I want people who are entering this potential trajectory to really try to focus on what you have, what's in your hand right now. What can you do with that? And if you can find ways to make it grow, do it. You'll be a success no matter what. Man, that's awesome, Iris. Thank you so much for all of this. And thank you for sharing your story and being such a motivating force for us and in our experience so far being so positively engaged in our development too. Been an awesome mentor to me, I know, and Anne even more closely, which I'm jealous of. This happens I work on <laughs> something else, but no, we really appreciate what you're doing, Iris, and we know that you're going to do awesome on this next step. So thank you, thank you, thank you for sharing all of this with us today. Oh, no, thank you. This is such an honor. And I really wish I could have spoken to a little bit more of the PI details, but I'm not quite there. All I could really share with you is my experience to how I got to where I am. And, and hopefully we'll have another follow-up conversation where I can share everything that I know about PI ship. Oh yeah. The Stay tuned. <laughs> yeah, the Stay update tuned. in a few years. That'll be awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Iris. We really appreciate it. Thank you.
Beyond how motivating this story was, something that really stuck out to me was how Iris has been able to glean the positives from her previous experiences to help her in her current role. As Iris discussed throughout, she did not have a traditional path towards science initially, but nonetheless, Iris was able to leverage the unique skills she gained at each step during her training, which I thought was really helpful. I believe this characteristic can go a long way for anyone, as it shows one's abilities to introspect, and I think it can be a source of internal motivation and support. So for trainees and research specifically, just because a job you worked wasn't based in a lab, it doesn't inherently mean the position didn't help build your scientific intuition or skills in another way. Early on in my training, I had to take a break from college to help out my family for a little while, and I worked in a cold storage food facility, basically. And I thought that like there was no way that that experience was ever going to help me out in research, but the skills that I learned in regard to how to manage projects and keep track of massive levels of inventory or big data actually is really helping me out now. But at the time, I was like, man, I really don't want to be counting these boxes in a freezer. So no matter what your experiences might have been, they can be co-opted in the future. And I think that throughout this conversation today, Iris did a really good job of explaining some really tough stuff that she then was able to turn around, reframe, and use as motivation and leverage for her current career. And I thought that was really impactful. That's a good takeaway, Dennis. I think an obvious takeaway from this one is just Iris's perseverance and how we should persevere as well. Uh, She gave some really great tips for fighting despair and some wonderful mindset shifts that we can all make. And I actually just wanted to list them all out because she gave so many, and I think it'd be great to hear them again. So here's a couple of them. I probably missed a few. But take your losses like you take your victories. Remain disciplined, even if you aren't motivated. Put one foot in front of the other. Think about what went right, where you are now is a blessing in and of itself. Celebrate every major and minor accomplishment. Learn how to cope with failure and grow with what you currently have. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Science Behind Science podcast. We look forward to catching you next time.